Welcome to Mom and Doc Talk, a podcast for health-conscious parents where you get the perspective of a mom and a dad who's also a pediatrician and pediatric emergency physician. Instead of Googling your way through parenting and hoping for the best, get trusted guidance and be the empowered, savvy, and decisive parent you know you can be. Sleep easy when you follow advice tested by doctors and tried by moms and dads. Here are your mom and dad hosts, Dr. Christopher Haynes and Azure Sullivan. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mom and Doc Talk. I'm Azure Sullivan. Hey, guys. It's Dr. Chris. And I am really excited to kind of direct this talk today. I, you know, I love being a mom and, you know, being a parent, that life is so much different than when I wasn't a parent and, you know, two great worlds, right? And they can work very well together. But before I was pregnant, you know, you think you know everything, you think you have it all together. And then you're reading those two red lines on that strip and you're like, okay, so now I feel like I don't know anything. And, um, you know, we talked about in one of our previous podcasts about, you know, the kind of the pregnancy view and perspective of both the mom and the dad or both parents, I should say. And um, today we're kind of going to go a little bit more on new parents and, you know, going back, you know, it's such a wonderful experience, you know, but I, you know, I work a full-time job, you know, there's a lot of things going on in my life. Being a parent is really overwhelming in general for anybody. And you think like, how am I going to remember any of this? You know, there's that what to expect when you're expecting book and nobody wants to read that and, you know, including myself. Um, So we have all these questions when we're either pregnant or we have a partner that's pregnant or we have a newborn baby or even this is your third time around with a new baby and maybe it's been a while and you want to, you know, hop back on that wagon and you feel like you forgot everything. So this is so amazing because it's just like, how I met Dr. Chris, I had so many questions for him, so which he loves. And so today is about these top 20 questions new parents ask pediatricians and pediatric doctors, and Dr. Chris is going to get overwhelmed today. And I suspect it'll be more than 20 Absolutely. questions. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to go hard. And let me just also say, it's so important to have this really great relationship with your pediatrician in general. So being comfortable with them, asking them questions is really super important. So we're really hoping that all these questions that we're talking about today that I'm going to, you know, talk to Dr. Chris about, I should ask him, you know, and so that you can feel more prepared and confident as you kind of enter maybe this new stage in your life, or maybe it's just you know, the same stage that you've experienced, but new in 2022. First things first, what are the signs of a healthy baby? Well, as as you ask that question, that's always a challenge. And I, as a pediatrician and a pediatric ER doctor, I see sick kids all the time, but I also see well. And part of it is really knowing your baby to start with and knowing their routines, knowing who they are, and trusting in yourself, using your dad instincts, your mom instincts. There's certainly more mom instincts than dad, um, but you have to use them. And when there's changes, you need to go really kind of look at them and assess. And some of the things that definitely should be on your radar to look out for are fever, um, looking out for vomiting that's different than spitting up, 
um, certainly profuse diarrhea or a lot of diarrhea, excessive crying, or if your baby's not eating or growing. You know, we have kind of a, a funny way of looking at it with babies. A yawning baby is a happy baby. Mm-hmm. Babies that stretch and they're making good cooing sounds. So there's all the things that you definitely want to worry about when you have a young baby and things to look out for. So it's great that you mentioned fever because, you know, I've been around kids who are like, oh, my kid has a fever. It's 99.3. I mean, it, and then I hear, that's not really a fever. What's a fever? Yeah, that's the bane of my existence. <laughs> and under three months of age, if your baby has a fever, first and foremost, you need to call your doctor. And if you can't get a hold of your doctor, you need to go to the emergency department. And I don't say that often. Um, what's really important is knowing what a fever is and how to take it. So a fever is 100, 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit equal to that or higher. That's a fever, not at 99.6, not at 98.9. It has to be equal and higher, equal to or higher than that. With the proper uh, take taking a proper um, temperature, that is. Yeah. We hear a lot. We hear, well, I touched my baby. They feel warm. That doesn't help us Yeah, that's not good. And, you know, especially, I mean, can you get away with that in a three-year-old? Sure, absolutely. But you can't get away with that in a young baby. And really, guidelines, probably under a year, and some people would say under two, you might want to do a rectal temperature. That's what's really recommended and is going to get your best temperature because you can't put the thermometer in their mouth. I would also say we see a lot of uh, infrared thermometers. And they can vary. And if you go back and certainly go into some of our classes, we talk about thermometers and they can vary as much as four degrees either direction, whether you're putting it in an ear. Or, and four you know, degrees is a really drastic yeah. change. Yeah. And you know, pacifier thermometers, you know, use a rectal thermometer in a baby. And certainly, absolutely, if you're going to use one of the infrared, double check it. Um, I have people coming in all the time that my child's temperature was 107.5. Um, degrees Fahrenheit, it's not compatible with life. You know, I, you know, want to be nice and say, you know what, you really need to probably go get a different thermometer and start over, but definitely a rectal temperature. I mean, especially for our new parent, I feel like a lot of these things you don't really know, like what's unusual crying and you, you know, you say unusual crying. Well, if, you know, if you've had this baby for only three, four, seven days, you know, do you really know what unusual crying is? Uh, do you really know the difference between vomiting and spit up? I think that these are really important tips for, you know, you really need to go to your pediatrician and do the, the follow-ups as they suggest. So like if your baby was born with, uh, you know, was underweight or was in the NICU or any of those things, pediatricians are really, really on about following up with your baby like one, two, three days after they leave the hospital. So it's really, I want to say it's really important. Don't you agree? I agree. And one of the words I use, and this is a a football term, but they need to be your quarterback. And we frequently see a lot of young babies in an ER in the middle of the night um, that are well babies. And we love that because we get an opportunity to educate them and to teach and get them back to their pediatrician. But your pediatrician should have someone on call 24 hours a day where you can call them and they should be calling you back. And certainly, you know, with anything, if you think something off, get care, um, get to an emergency room, call your pediatrician. But as you're, you know, you ask about crying, right? And let's talk a little bit about colic and what colic is. There's lots of questions about colic. And the definition of colic is crying for three hours a day straight, not stopping, three days a week 
for three weeks straight. That's a lot of crying. That is a lot of crying. It is really rare when you get to that. And it does exist in our population. I wouldn't say it's rare, but we do see it a fair amount. But there are lots of reasons for crying. It's an entire textbook chapter that you know we have in our textbook. I mean, they could have a gas <clears throat> bubble. They could be hungry. They could be hurting. They could be, you know, there's so many reasons. And, you know, we're always taught to really rely on the parents. You know, we don't see them. We might see them in an office for 25, 30 minutes. We might see them in the ER for 15, 20 minutes. You will know as a parent, you will know if something's off. You know, the, the pitch of the cry is, is wrong. Um, you pick them up and they cry more than usual. You put them down, they cry. Something's off. They're not feeding well. And all of those things are really important. And I can't stress it enough. If you think something's wrong, you know, use your gut. And to kind of go off the feeding, and this is like going to be a question from you later on, but like especially breastfeeding moms who have never breastfed before, you think, you know, oh, it's just going to be like a fountain of youth when I come home. It's just going to come out. And sometimes it just doesn't and you're just not – you just don't know how – really to get the maximum flow of milk. And then, I mean, speaking from personal experience, like I went home and I just wasn't producing as much the first week. And that first week is really, really important for baby weight gain. So, um, which I'll ask you about a little later. Uh, I would add that breastfeeding is on demand. So the more you do it, the more you're going to produce. And that's not true for everyone, but don't give up. Just keep pushing, get help from your pediatrician. We're all trained in it. Get help from a lactation consultant. They will all help you. And there are huge benefits to breastfeeding. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Like, I mean, I didn't want to give up, but I had like that feeling of like, no, 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 I got this. I, I don't need to check with my, with the weight of how much she's actually eating. It's totally fine. But really I took her in for like her day three checkup and they're like, yeah, she should probably, probably gain like a little bit more. You should probably either supplement or like try to nurse her like, you know, every minute. <laughs> uh, so going back to vomiting and diarrhea, you want to like add some really important points. Is there something that, you know, really stands out, especially when you see these kids coming into the ER? Yeah, I think that... And I hear a lot of babies are getting uh, the reflux. Yeah, it escaped my mind for a second. The acid reflux, and that can be... Yeah, we see... I'd say a decent amount of kids that have reflux. It's gastroesophageal reflux disease, Azure. I was waiting for that. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not the acid reflux, and it is acid really, but a lot of it's related to feeding, and they'll end up having a lot of spit ups. It's certainly going to be more common in premature infants. Um, things we worry about with vomiting, vomiting that's blood. If you see blood that bloody vomit, if you see bright fluorescent green vomit or black vomit, that's what you need to worry. The other thing to really worry about is if it's projectile. When I mean projectile, it's not a bad spit up. It goes across the room. And I will never forget the first time I was in the room with a child that had pyloric stenosis. And that's something that you can get around a month of age. And I sat in the room and it shot across the room like a poltergeist. And I had never seen it. It was before I had children. And it's something that's really important to look out for right around anywhere between that three to six week age group. Um, Diarrhea, same thing. We get lots of questions. If it's profusely watery, you need to get help. You need to talk to your doctor because you really need to replace those things and baby can babies can get dehydrated quickly. Just like us. Exactly. They can get super dehydrated. But, but much more. They have baby skin. 
They lose water through their skin faster. They can they breathe more quickly. And really, it's about feeding and keeping up that feeding and, and really going there. One thing that's really important, and I do have to stress this since we're talking about water, is you do not want to give water to a baby. And certainly not under six months. And if you're going to give it under a year, you want to talk to your pediatrician. They get adequate water through their formula, they get adequate water through breastfeeding. And by giving more, you can actually decrease their sodium and cause seizures. We see it every summer. Every summer? Yes, absolutely. They think, oh, my baby's hot, I'm gonna give them water. Yeah, and other things to add with diarrhea, if it's black, if it's red, um, certainly looks like blood. Um, there are medications that can cause it to look red, but if it's that's red- That's not something I wanna wait get on. It, get, it, get it checked. I'm definitely um, going into, I'd say that's an ER visit. That's a call to your pediatrician first and potentially the ER. There are certain medications, like I said, that can do that. And certainly if your child's getting antibiotics, ask your pediatrician, are there any side effects? Uh, one medicine in particular, Omnicef or Ceftonir, we get kids all the time that come in with what looks like bloody diarrhea. And I say hello to the child. We talk about the medication and I send them home and they go back to their pediatrician <laughs> and it happens. And I'm sure the parents are like, well, that was great. Well, I'm sure they were, but they're scared to death. And, <laughs> Absolutely. and, and I would be if it was my child as well. I know it and I have more information. So, you know, that's an opportunity for us to educate and to really try to help. Um, I would go back to something and echo what Azure said. If your baby's unwell, call your pediatrician. If you think something off is off, we will never, ever, we're there to see you. We're there to help you. I would love 10 babies a night that are well babies in the emergency department. Really don't want them there because I don't want them to get infected with the things that are potentially in the ER, but at least they're there. And that's a good thing from my perspective. We can educate and help. There is this thing called a soft spot on a baby's head, right? We call it the soft spot. I'm sure you have this wonderful term for it. And we're all scared to touch their head. We love kissing it, but we don't like touching their head or we're afraid. So when can... I touch or we touch this soft spot or can we, right? And does it close? Does it stay open? What is it? So the soft spot, as you as you said, is also called the fontanelle. And it basically means an opening. And it's an opening between all of the bones as they're fusing together in the skull. And it allows the baby's brain to grow over time. So it's important that it's there. So if it's not there. Isn't it crazy how vulnerable we are when we're born? Like a baby deer comes out and it's just like ready to go. Um, I don't think we're as vulnerable as you think, but we are. You know, you're absolutely correct. I mean, deer is running off, but they're going to get eaten too. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully we're not being eaten. <laughs> yeah. um, but definitely, you know, you have to be very careful with a soft spot. It can easily get bruised. We talk in our world that it's the window to the brain. Um, it is an area that the brain is right underneath. And you should be really avoid repeatedly touching it. You can touch it gently and be very gentle. Um, what's important with it is it will close over time. Um, typically, it closes right around 18 months, 16 to 18 months, somewhere in that ballpark. And if you feel it gently, we kind of describe it by the number of fingertips and how we'll see it go down over time. Kind of like a dilation. When yeah, the doctor's yeah, sticking so. their fingers up there. Yeah, it was a fingertip and a half at, you know, 14, 14 months, somewhere yeah. in that ballpark. So how do you, you know, recommend brushing hair? People. I, I wouldn't worry about it, to be very honest. I would be particularly careful when they're very, very young. 
just light touch and be gentle. And as they get older, you know, 16 month old, you know, they're, they're top heavy anyway. We call them weeble wobbles. They're just going to fall down. Um, they're going to do well. And, you know, you can certainly touch it and just be gentle. And going back to the diarrhea thing. So what should the healthy poop look like? What color should it be? You know, and breastfeeding and formula produce kind of different poops too. Yeah, this is a question and it's really a complaint we get all the time, either in a pediatric office and an emergency department as well. My, my baby's poop is gray. Um, my baby's poop is black. Um, there are lots of different things that you need to worry about. Um, certainly a call to your pediatrician, but babies, when they first come out, they transition from being inside. And initially it'll be this kind of watery, greenish, nasty black. It almost looks like molasses. It's very gross. <laughs> it is sticky. And, you know, when we have babies that poop when they're being delivered and we're catching them and there's meconium everywhere, it just doesn't come off. It's, it's literally like molasses and it can be, um, look a little bit gross, but they pass it when they're first born. Um, we definitely look out and there are things associated with not passing that in the first few days. So that's something if they're not passing, it can be a problem as well. But as they get more along in age, they will start to have commonly, you know, one, two, three months. It is described as seedy and yellow. Um, and that's very, very normal. It kind of looks like a paste. Um, if you really think about what diarrhea is, we kind of think about it. If it doesn't stick to the side of the cup, it's diarrhea. Um, and if it does stick to the side of the cup, it's probably normal and it won't fill up a cup. That's really what watery diarrhea is like. And we get that question all the time. We also get questions about, you know, it, it's green. Um, that's okay. Um, and like we said, if it's not black, if it's not bloody looking, um, it shouldn't also be white either. That can be a sign of liver disease. And that can be a problem. So if it's white for days on end, you know, two, three, you need to talk to your pediatrician. And in general, what will happen is as they get older and I've seen it as a parent, it, they start to eat more solid foods and we describe them as, you know, they're starting to have an adult poop, you know. It's, and this is after, you know, more of the six month mark, right? Correct. When they're starting to eat adult food. Yeah, in that, in that four to six when they start to advance stuff and they start to end up having food that's consistent with adults. Well, we've talked about the poop part, so now the pee part, right? I remember, you know, people saying, oh, there's an app for how many times you change them, if it was pee or poop, you know, it's kind of giving a new parent real direction of like the quantity of the dirty diapers that your baby's having because if they're not having a certain quantity of diapers then you should probably seek your pediatrician they're not eating or drinking enough putting enough weight on all those lovely things so pee frequency what should it look like i think there's an answer for newborns and then as they get older it changes and it goes back to what we first talked about knowing your child's routine in general most babies three, four months and below, they're going to pee every time they eat. And it's about every two to four hours, they'll have a wet diaper. And we use that very much. We quantitate and we figure out how many wet diapers they've had in the last 12 hours when we're concerned, when they get sick, you know, are they getting enough? Did it drop off? And it's really looking at that pattern. You know, have they had one wet diaper in the last 24 hours? That's a problem. You need to give your pediatrician a call or come get checked out in the emergency department. 
but that will spread out over time. You know, you're going to have lots and lots of wet diapers, especially if it's your first baby. You know, you're going to have diaper after oh, yeah. diaper Stock after diaper. Stock up on those diapers. And, you know, you'll get really heavy ones, you'll get light ones, but really understanding what your pattern with your child is is really important. I mean, even if you think about ourselves, like I go through my work day and I'm like, wow, I only peed twice. I worked like eight hours. I should probably have drank a lot more than I did. And I feel dehydrated. I think as adults, we all run around dehydrated uh, yeah. all day. This is an understatement. So sometimes it's, you know, the important thing is here is, you know, just focus on what you're actually giving your child because then that's the other thing. If you're give, you know, feeding them, you know, watering them <laughs> um, and nothing's coming Are out. Are they a plant? Yeah. And nothing's coming out, then that's another issue. Yeah. That's, that's an issue where you need to have a conversation with your pediatrician. And, you know, this is a, a question. We get a lot of what I'll call overfeeding. And when... People typically, you know, a newborn is going to eat every two to three hours, probably two to three ounces, and that's going to... That was going into my next question. Yeah, it's going to slowly increase over time. You know, I, I see all the time, the four-month-old that's getting eight-ounce bottles, and, you know, they look like the Michelin baby. And or I've heard that they're eating too much, they're vomiting. Yeah, and we see that, and it also causes diarrhea. I will say a story. Uh, you know, it really made me angry, and this is gonna happen to new parents you know old parents whatever when you have a new baby you have grandparents especially and this is where i, I you know i stress most of my informing your great you know whoever the child's grand grandparents are or older older people that are taking care of them that are used to different ways at a different time and um i remember you know leaving my daughter with her grandmother and not my mother and I was getting a call that she was vomiting profusely. And I was thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, I have to, like, come home. Like, you know, I wasn't in, in town at the time. And I, she, I said, well, you know, of course, my first question is, well, what are you feeding her? What are you, what are you doing? Why is she's never been this way? I dropped her off a completely healthy kid. And she was like, oh, well, you told me to give her, you know, eight ounces of this. And my kid was probably only a month old at this time. My daughter was not taking eight ounces at a time. And I was like, oh my God, you're overfeeding her and she's vomiting. I was so angry. I was so angry. I couldn't even handle myself. I drove right there and I picked my kid up and, um, you know, I had a chat, a couple words that I probably shouldn't have at the time because my emotions got ahead of me, but I had strictly wrote it down on a piece of paper, you know, how much, when, what time so i was really upset but anyway so the it, frequencies we we see that all the yeah, time yeah it, it happens and i hear your stories it's certainly a topic for discussion you know as as a mom it's your baby and there are a lot of well-intended grandmothers that are super excited i would be too and they will tend to overstep their bounds just a little bit or maybe more than they should and what was good for you when they were your mother might not always be good now. Yeah, and exactly. That's I think we see it with feeding. Um, I've seen tragedies from it. You know, I've had kids that have had um, isopropyl alcohol baths, and they used to it's... put people in alcohol baths all the time, and the child came in toxic from an alcohol. And it when you went... think about that now, you're like, well, what the heck is that? Like, I, you know, I... I've never heard of it. It's sometimes, you know, it's again, old timey ways. But, it's... but we still see it. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. it's not that it's not well intended. And I think that's really important. 
And it's kind of why we're doing this. Yeah, it's, you know, so again, just want to stress, you know, make sure the person that's watching your child also knows the feeding the feeding process and the quantity. So how often should a kid eat? How often should my baby um, eat? Let's talk about infants. You know, infants are two to four ounces every two to four hours. And you need to judge. You know, it goes back to you need to go up as the child is getting older. Well, why? Well, they're they're growing and they have more meta- they have a faster metabolism and they're going to need more calories to grow. So and they have these tiny little stomachs. Yeah, their stomach's about the size of their fist. So think about what it's like to put eight ounces into the volume of a baby's fist. It's coming right back up. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to see in a pediatric office or a pediatric emergency department is is frequent spit ups. And it's going to be a mess. So with with that being said, spitting up, what do you do if the baby spits up? You know, I'm burping them. They spit up. You know, sometimes you see them spit up without burping. You know, what? Yeah, we, we will tend to have a nurse and a doctor when we have patients come in. And it's really taking your time. And I think... It's probably more new parents than parents that are experienced. Parents that are experienced of, you know, the kids spitting over, spitting up over in the corner um, when it's the third or fourth baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's common. It doesn't usually indicate a problem. We talked about it before. If it's projectile, yeah, you need to be worried. If it's black, if it's a funny color, absolutely. Um, but most commonly, it's from overfeeding. Um, it's from not feeding in an upright position. Um, I see babies all the time. I walked in the other night and I saw a baby that was laying on their back with a bottle propped in their mouth and certainly not the way you want to feed baby and you want to really have them upright. Um, it can be caused by that term Azure talked about acid reflux, which is gastroesophageal reflux. Um, and what that is really is where you tend to have an abnormality that allows liquid to go back up through the esophagus. And, you know, certainly your pediatrician will look into that. Um, but most commonly it's from burping, not burping frequently enough. Um, it's not doing an upright position. And, you know, lastly, there are some select bottles that may help. Um, and sometimes, and we hear this from the nurses all the time, the bottle wasn't right and they were getting too much too quickly. Um, so do you want, you want to feed or them? Or maybe the nipple, I'd say rather it was the nipple Correct. rather than the bottle. And the, the bottles the, can nipples contribute Nipples definitely well. have different phases, one, two, three phases yep. or stages. I mean, stages Correct. of, of, of flow. Yeah, I would agree a hundred percent, but bottom line, you know, if they're spitting up more than usual, something changes, you know, you'll hear that over and over again for me. You know, if the pattern changes, if something's off, that's really important. If it's projectile, if it's true vomiting. Yeah, you need to talk to your doctor. The younger your child is, especially under that three-month range, um, you need to be really careful because babies that age can have problems quickly. And going back on that, I kind of feel like I try to relate things to myself, you know, a little common sense of like, well, if I'm eating, do I want to lie on my back? No, I'm probably going to want to sit up a little straight. I'm going to, you know, rest my stomach. I'm not going to like lie down right away. I think about these like, oh, I do burp, but I can, I know when I'm burping. I, I can do it on my own and babies can't do that. So um, I also think about like the spitting up in that, in that way. I would agree. And or it's eating, a, you know, I eat what's my fistful of it's food, a, right? It's a, it's a good analogy, but, you know, think about, you know, when you had just delivered. 
right? You're tired. You just had a baby. You just came home with a new baby and you're like, oh my God. And you're exhausted. You know, dad's exhausted. You're handing off in the middle of the night. You don't even see each other. It's very easy to get lazy Mm -hmm. and or really not know. And, you know, I don't think that's wrong. I think that just understanding it and, you know, as I said earlier, that's why we're doing this. We're doing this to, you know, this is perfect for grandparents that haven't had a baby in a while. It's perfect for parents. And, you know, maybe we can give you a kernel of something new that will help that will, you know, make it easier, maybe save you a trip to an ER or save a call to the pediatrician or a little tip or trick along the way. Now, I have a really great question for you. This one, every parent can't wait to ask their pediatrician. I'm a little afraid of this one. Yeah. <laughs> when should my baby sleep through the night? So the answer to that is... Because we can't wait. Not within a week. Yeah, we my, can't My baby's a big red flag. My baby's a good sleeper and sleeping through the night a week. Um, that's a problem. And there are clearly outliers to this, but... A lot of sleeping and, as you've heard, peeing and, the you know, my adult colleagues are like, did you just really say pee? Did you really just say poop? Um, yeah, that's the world I live in. But peeing, pooping, sleeping, that's what they do. That's what they're – they're all tied together. And they're this little machine that's really growing and, you know, is going to go from this, you know, six-pound baby to within a year triple that weight. Um, if we did that, I mean, think how much we'd have to eat, pee, and poop. Um, but like I said, it's developmental, right? And what is the definition of sleeping through the night, right? What is it for us? It's six to eight hours. Uh, I don't know. No, not about me. I I hope. (laughs) Certainly not if you're a new parent, six to eight hours is not. Definitely not. But, you know, in the perfect world, it would be eight hours. So think about it. You know, the baby goes to bed at 10 o'clock and wakes up at 6 a.m. That would be your baby slept through the night and you had a great night. Um, That will improve but it's related to age it's related to development it's also related to the need for feeding so even if my newborn does sleep through the night it should not they should not that is a bad thing um in general you know i had a person ask me how long they should sleep and i remember rounding on the pediatric floors and don't ever wake up a baby well on the floors when we're doing exams we have to be very stealthy when we do it but as a parent, if your baby's sleeping probably four and a half, five, five and a half, especially in that first four, six, eight weeks, you need to be concerned because they need the calories every four to six hours. And really, you should kind of be waking them up to feed them. And oh, if- but they look so cute and they're they're just so precious sleeping there. I don't want to wake them up. They need to eat. And you need to wake them up. I put and my daughter on a quick schedule. As soon as she, she came home, boom, schedule. She knew when to wake up. She knew when when it was time. Well, it doesn't work for every baby. It doesn't. Absolutely not. She was in baby boot camp, though. But in general, you know, up to about two months, babies should be sleeping two to four hours at a time. And this can vary. Um, babies that are breastfeed generally need to feed more often versus formula fed. That's a... It just it gets processed a little faster, and they're hungry again. Um, <laughs> We've so breastfeeding moms, we kind of just kill ourselves just like a little bit more. Absolutely. <laughs> then then you get into that two three month range, and really they're kind of developmentally in that we talked about under two months they should really be feeding every four hours. They can start to go to that five six hour time, and 
at that point, they're sleeping five to six hours as well. They don't need that food as much. And, you know, they'll still need maybe one, two, probably two feedings through the night at that age in the two to three month range. And right around uh, four to six months, they start to get up into that seven hour range. And it of technically- Of course, after your pediatrician approves. Um, yes and no, it's your baby. You know, you need to also have communicate some, with them. Communicating yeah. with your pediatrician, hey, this is the outlook I want to do. Want to start doing. But I'm I'm a really big believer in shared decision making, mm-hmm. and it is your baby. Absolutely. And like I was saying, you know, they're getting to seven hours, and you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and you're reading, you know, good stuff. Then you know what they probably are technically getting close to sleeping through the night. Really, it's right around five to six months is when babies should begin to sleep through the night. Um, I think that it's also important to say that I have parents that come in are eight nine months old, and my baby doesn't sleep through the night. That might be a parent issue. Um, that may be a routine problem potentially. Yeah. But babies will fight. You know, they won. It's great. Mom's coming in at three o'clock in the morning, giving me hugs, yeah, feeding me. Yeah, giving in, That's fantastic. I want that, Parents, as, a, I want that as an adult. I want to be fed at three o'clock in the morning. Just got to let them cry it out. But that overnight cuddling, that bonding, um, and it's tempting to give in, um, but really working through it hard, you'll get that good sleeper. A good routine, just like us. We go to bed at a certain time. We wake up at a certain time. We know yeah. exactly what we're, what we're supposed to be doing. We feel great. I, I can't agree that's a thousand percent I would agree with that so then how do you know if your baby's crying for no reason right uh you know trying to do uh the sleep routine um and you know they're crying because you know they want you to give in they're used to the three four hours of waking up and feeding and now you're starting to stretch them out a little bit longer getting them into a little bit more normal sleep routine how do you know what's a cry for help versus a cry just because I want you to come in and pat my back and rub my face and kiss me and hug me? It's very easy to think it's about they want to cuddle, right? And honestly, if you've fed your baby, your baby's peeing, they're pooping. You just changed they're them. yawning, they're changed, then your baby's good. And, you know, certainly if they cry for three hours straight, it's a different thing. Absolutely. But most times, you know, you're going to put them down. They're going to cry for 45 minutes. It's going to be an hour and it's going to stop. And it's painful. It is very painful. It hurts. I remember my dad, when I was doing the, the getting my daughter into the sleep routine and he heard her crying. He's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're letting her cry. And this is after like five minutes. And I'm like, she has to understand that I'm not going to come in when she feels like it. And it was like maybe a week of that, and it was boom, done. She was sleeping when I wanted her to, woke up when I wanted her to, and he was like, oh, wow. Because, you know, my dad didn't really do that with us. Mm-hmm. He left it up to my mom. No, it's it's hard work, and it can be painful along the way. It's also really important getting everyone on the same page. Um, we have moms and dads that are not on the same page, and one is just can't take the crying and goes and gets the baby. And it's not... I don't think we should discount that babies do cry when they're sick. They do cry when they're ill. But giving them a chance to cry it out, I think, is really important. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying of just if you know your kid and everything seems normal, everything seems right, then there's probably no reason to think that this crying is for negative reasons. And and look, if it's a one and a half month old, different story. I mean, I, I remember I had a friend. She was, you know, pregnant 
right after me. And uh, so, you know, my daughter was like a few months older than hers. Or, and, uh, you know, my, my daughter was sleeping through the night. And by the time her kid came to be the same age, she was like, oh, my kid isn't sleeping through the night. And, you know, just by hanging out with her in an evening, her kid was, you know, knocking on her chest for to eat every 30 minutes, just like a little, a little snack, I called it. Oh, they want a snack. And I was like, oh, well. They want, they want Uber they, Eats. They want Uber Eats. They're, they're, they, she just wants to eat more. And she's like, oh, but I can't let her cry. She's hungry. I want her to eat. And I was like, well, she's probably not going to sleep through the night then. You know, my, my kid's doing it pretty well. <laughs> but I don't let her snack either. No midnight snacking. <laughs> now, Dr. Chris, we talked about you know, if there are signs that your baby is sick, abnormal signs. Over-the-counter medications is what we, as parents, would probably go to right away. Tylenol, ibuprofen, all those great things. So is it okay to give your baby over-the-counter medications? And actually, what are those over-the-counter medications that parents want to do? So this, this is going to be a quick answer. And the answer is don't give anything that your pediatrician doesn't tell you to give. And in general, for babies, it's going to be Tylenol only when your pediatrician tells you, and especially under three months because Tylenol can mask fevers and it can mask illness when the babies are very, very young. Ibuprofen should not be given under six months of age. That's really, really important. It can be harmful. And many of the over-counter medications can be harmful to a baby, can also be harmful to a child. Um, It's big business. And, you know... Certainly, there's cough medicines, there's seasonal allergy medications. Talk to your pediatrician. There's a lot of data, and they can recommend if they're appropriate for your baby and which ones are appropriate. Okay. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I want to kind of go back. You know, I have my newborn, and I have a couple of these questions that, you know, I take them home for the first time. And one of them is when can I give my baby a bath? So that's tied a little bit to the umbilical cord and when it falls off. Usually it happens in the first week or two. Yeah, I guess we, I can ask you that. You know, So when also was, does my child's umbilical cord stump fall off and the care for that, yeah. we can... Yeah, the old time was you, know, you wanted to treat it with alcohol around the stump and that's kind of changed to just keeping it dry, you know, giving your child either sponge baths, sponge sponge bath is yeah they are sponge bath (laughs) um and certainly once it falls off then you can begin to submerge them either in a bathtub or a sink and you know i'm a pediatric er doctor and i see kids that come in with super dry skin that get bathed three times a day i see babies that get bathed once a week and it varies but you know couple times a week is probably the sweet spot in the middle. Yeah, especially if they're spinning up. If they smell badly, smell sour, it's probably an indicator. Yeah, I would agree, I would agree with you, but just keep an eye on their skin. Some kids have so, a so- propensity to get eczema, and you know they are bathed three times a day because they're getting a rash, and it only worsens it. So certainly, I would say, just like we talked about with a routine, there's a bathing routine as well, and it's bathe and moisturize your baby afterward. And just keep in mind, bathing can be a bad thing. It can cause really dry skin. I also think, and this is my ER doctor coming out, is be really careful. And 
first and foremost, start when you come home, one of the first things you should do either before you come home or before the baby starts getting baths is check the temperature on your water heater. If you're living in an apartment complex, you're living in a- Especially an apartment complex. Double check. It should not exceed from a safety standpoint, 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, Let me just add something right there. I've lived in a lot of apartment complexes, you know, years of my life, and I've experienced- that you know, you turn the water on one temperature, and then ten minutes later, it actually changes, and it gets way hotter. Yeah, I think everyone needs to be careful. And the perfect temperature for a baby bath is ninety-eight point six to about one hundred and two degrees. And you know, if you have water that's one hundred forty, one hundred sixty degrees, you can get scald burns in an instant, and we're talking about seconds. Going back to the umbilical cord. You mentioned keeping it dry. Don't put alcohol on it. Don't put anything on it, really. And is there something to, like, look out for, you know, if it looks like a certain way, something stand out to you? I I think first and foremost, it's really important to talk about what is it, right? It was the way that your baby was fed, got blood, did all of those things. And we said it falls off in a week or two. But you know, some of the things that you can get, and there's it's a really funny word, it's called umphalitis. And that's the word for an infected stump of the cord. So if it's red, it has foul smelling discharge. Um, there's white areas sticking out, which can be what we call granulomas. Those are things you really want to look out for. And otherwise, you just really want to keep it dry. Stay away from it. Yeah. Fold the diaper down where, you know, uh, un- don't button the... Uh- the onesie, uh, make it kind of loose clothing around it. Yeah, and, and it will dry off, and it is tissue. It's not going to smell great. Um, it's tissue that's dead tissue, so it's going to smell a little bit. But certainly if it's really, really foul, you need to get it checked out. You don't want to put creams on it. You don't want to put lotions or oils on it either. And, hey, I, I, had, a friend's, I had a friend who had a kid whose belly button looked, I think it was herniated. And it was sticking out, you know, what is, what is that and why? It's really, they're born with it and it is a defect in the wall of the abdomen, really the muscles around the umbilicus or the belly button area. And we see it a fair amount. And the good thing is that you don't need to do anything about it. And if obviously if it gets stuck and it turns blue, that's a different story, but in general it will go away and they don't generally do surgery on this type of hernia until about age four or five. Uh, what I have seen, and I would stress do not do, and this is typically grandmother telling people to do this, is do not tape a coin over it. Um, it can erode through the wall of the abdomen and actually cause a hole in the, in the stomach wall. So you definitely do not want to tape a 50 cent piece, tape a coin. Um, it's not only a choking hazard, but it can hurt them. Some of these things that you say, I I've never heard in my life before meeting you. And, you know, this is a side question. How do you react? I know you're not allowed to react in any way, but like how are you reacting in your mind when you're hearing these these stories or, you know, these how people are handling these situations at home? Um, I think people are trying to do what's best for their baby. And... People have different cultural norms, and we're taught to accept those cultural norms. Um, For instance, in the Asian culture, 
there's a practice called coining and cupping where coins will be rubbed on the back of a baby or a child and it causes a bright red rash that looks like a star pattern. And you would think, is that abuse? Are they hurting the child? And it's not considered abuse because it's cultural and it's meant to help the child. And there are different patterns in different cultures. And I'm a big believer, you know, hopefully we pick it up early and the coin doesn't sit on there for six weeks in a road through the abdominal wall. And that's why we teach people. Um, in pediatrics, we have a term called anticipatory guidance. And at each visit that you go to, the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended things that are talked about with parents. It's the things we're talking about today. It's how do I feed my baby? How often they should they be fed? So for instance, you know, if a teenager, you know, you talk to them about drugs and alcohol. So there are those different steps through the pediatric journey. And that's why it's really important to have that relationship with your pediatrician. That's awesome. You know, that you can, you guys are exposed to all those things. And sometimes you do get the the heads up on these cultural yeah. norms, so to speak. I, I will also go back to your comment. You know, there are certainly things that we see that raise eyebrows. We're like, <laughs> what the hell? You know, we're, we're human. You know, I, happens probably once a week and you're just shocked. And, you know, I think that's the one nice thing about pediatrics is that most people are trying to take care of their babies in a really good way. Mm -hmm. That's the positive. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of negative every day and that's the positive. People are doing their best. And that's kind of why I went into pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine because, you know, babies are naive and most people really want to help them and they may make mistakes but we can help them through those mistakes. And everybody loves you for that. You would hope. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of shifting gears. So you have your newborn, you know, talking about bathing, feeding them, the umbilical cord. These are the big topics, especially when kids are a little older going into daycare. You know, how can I keep my baby from getting sick? And kind of associating that with SIDS which we did talk, we had an entire episode about previously, but I want to touch on it again. So some of these couple first things when you bring your newborn home about SIDS and getting sick, and that's associated with the immunizations as well. So um, I know I kind of threw a lot of questions there at you. So let me just start at the SIDS. Um, how can I prevent SIDS or you know, what is it? How can I prevent it? SIDS is sudden infant death syndrome and it's kind of been renamed to be sudden unexpected infant death syndrome or infant death. So do we just say SUDS? S yes, SUDS. Yeah, I, I, I don't really think there's been a, a true mnemonic for it. It's still probably easy to call it SIDS. Um, but it's a death that's not related to an accident or an illness. It just kind of happens unexpectedly. And really the causes are unknown. Um, what you can do to, re to prevent it or at least do your best to prevent it is nothing in the crib we uh, talked about the abc yeah, rule yeah and alone uh, on their back in their crib alone meaning by themselves no siblings no stuffed animals no blankets on their back not on their stomach their side and in their crib meaning not a couch a pillow a swing set like one of those swings and not your bed yeah all of those things are absolutely correct and I have seen deaths as a result of all of them. Didn't you say they're usually because of asphyxiation? 
Um, that's what most people think it's related to, but, you know, think about it. If a baby, they don't have the muscle tone that we have, you know, they're face down. They have to be, I can't say it over. And I've said it a thousand times in my life, back to sleep and back to sleep, meaning back, they should be on their back to sleep. And that is a absolute rule. And it has decreased sudden infant death over many years and it continues to decrease. The other thing is not smoking or using any illicit drugs around your baby. And that goes. That also goes for during smoking outside during pregnancy. Outside. All of those things. If you smoke outside, you need to change your clothes, shower, and change your clothes, um, because you're exposing your baby to that. Um, and it's also important to get regularly checked by the pediatrician, um, because some health conditions may increase the risk of SIDS. And you know, can I guarantee that your child's not going to have SIDS? But I can certainly tell you the best ways to reduce them, and they're really important. And it's something that I can't stress enough. Well, you just mentioned that SIDS is not related to an illness. So SIDS is not when my kid is sick and then that means it's not sudden infant death. It's well, actually related to the illness then, right? Uh, so it's a totally different thing. Technically, it's not unexpected. Yeah. You know, they've had an illness and it's caused the death. So how can I prevent my child from being sick? And this kind of goes in to what are the recommended immunizations or shots for my for my baby as well? I think that it's a really good question. And, and parent, I know this is this is a really great question. And I, I lots think, of people are going to have different opinions about that second one. I think that it's also really important, to, especially in the context of COVID. And certainly we'll talk about COVID later and what experiences I've had with it and what's going on with it. Um, but really what's the best way to keep them getting sick is give them vaccines. Um, vaccines have been proven to decrease illness, decrease morbidity, which is illness and mortality, which is death. And there's a reason they exist. And there is no data to show that it impacts autism or causes autism at all. And I think the other thing is a washing their hands regularly and this not necessarily babies, but as children get older, um, you know, washing babies' hands, but washing a child's hands, getting them into that routine. And teaching them how to cough into their into their elbow and just general hygiene, but hand washing, hand washing, hand washing. And that goes for parents as well. I've seen them wash their kids' hands and not wash their own hands. Oh, absolutely. And we're not perfect as doctors either. Um, I've worked on projects to increase hand washing, and it's extremely important. I think what's really important to talk about is that first month of life. And we've not talked a lot about it and infections, but... If your baby gets a fever in the first month of life, the first four weeks, it is pretty standard across the country. We're going to readmit your child to the hospital at that point. Why? Because they are so at risk for infection with fever that we they don't have, I'll use the word, the armamentarium of, you know, I'm sick, mom. They can't tell you. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the normal reactions. They can be sick and not have a fever. They can be sick with a fever. Um, they get sick very, very quickly. And their immune systems aren't fully developed either. Which is why we suggest breastfeeding is, you know, as, if you can try to do it, it really mm-hmm. gives them all of the antibodies that they need, especially in those first three months. And I hear, you know, even before I left the hospital, try not to have a lot of different and new people around your child the first three months because 
even that one new person who's been exposed to, you know, this thousand of people, and then you have a second person coming in, they were exposed to another thousand people, you know, your child is being exposed to that, all those 2,000 people. And they don't have the antibodies that we do. I I always, you know, parents come in and it's... Because it was, you know, you have a baby back then. Oh, everyone came to the hospital. Everyone came and held your baby. Everyone was so excited. But now it's like, okay, well, we've got to make an appointment. You have to wash your hands, wear a mask. You know, if you maybe you should just wait until after the three months. I don't necessarily know whether it's three months. I would say at least a month. And using some common sense. And when we admit kids under a month of age for fever, they get what we call full septic workup. And when I say that, that's an IV placed. That's a urine catheterization because that's the only way we can get it because they can't pee in a cup for us. And they get a spinal tap. And it is really scary for parents going through that. And we do our best to get them through it as safely and really support the parents through it. And babies usually do really well. And most infections in kids are viral anyway but they're higher risk when they're young. They don't fully have their vaccines at a month of age. They get hepatitis B, going back to your question, at birth, and then they start to get series of vaccines at two months. So if you think about it, I got one vaccine for hepatitis B, which is really not related to the infections they're gonna get into the world, and then they're gonna start to get their vaccines that are gonna really help them around two months. There's a two-month gap where they're not fully vaccinated. Um, it puts them at higher risk for bacterial infections. And even with viral infections, their immune systems may not do as well as adults. So, you know, try not to expose them to lots of people. I remember going back to medical school and we were told walking in, we were given, our hands were sprayed and we were split into three groups. We had no idea what it was. <laughs> it just came in and sprayed your hands. Yeah, we did whatever they told us. <laughs> But they sprayed our hands and we were in infectious disease class and we knew it had something to do with infectious diseases. And we went through the day. I remember, I think we had six, eight hours of lectures. And at the end of the day, they came around with a black light. And really what it was, was invisible coloring that you would come up under black light. And a third of the group was given red, a third of the group was given green, a third of it was given blue. We were covered head to toe in red, green, and blue when the black lights came around. It was disturbing, and it really teach, teaches you to how important hand washing is. Not only that, but you know, someone coughing two feet away from you when yeah. you're at a restaurant with your newborn baby. Yeah, it's it's really important, and you know, we can certainly beat this over and over again. But a lot of it's common sense, and it's really trying to keep your baby from an exposure. Um, and COVID has really shown us how contagious things oh, are. Oh, absolutely. And really has kind of changed the norm. Unfortunately, most children have done really well compared to adults with COVID. Um, but it's something that I think is really at the top of everyone's mind. And right now, and we'll talk about this later, you know, there's a lot of discussion around what they're calling a virus vacuum during COVID. And many of the viruses I'm seeing now, I didn't see at all. We saw very little influenza. Um, I worked a few shifts this week, and I'm seeing influenza like it's going out of style. So I don't think we fully understand that. It's probably from mixing and kids going back. And now we're starting to see all those seasonal viruses again, which is is something we're used to taking care of, but it's coming back. It's not a terrible thing. 
No, we don't want kids to be sick. We don't want them to be sick, but it's inevitable. We were always going to get sick with something at some point. But, but keeping the newborn as safe as possible is really what we're trying to tell you. Agreed. And hand washing, hand washing, hand washing. I think it's important to go back to that shared decision making. And it's important to go back to understanding both the pros and the cons. And, you know, I've had parents that have had children that have gotten bacterial illness and gotten very, very sick. And they've realized after the fact, and I've had children that have died as a result of not having vaccines. And parents have come to me and said, I wish they had given vaccines to their children. And, you know, I think until you experience that, um, it's really hard to make that decision. I think that this topic is really, really important. I think that it'll be a great thing and we have it planned to do an entire episode on vaccines, talk about it, talk about each one, um, bring in some experts and really talk about the evidence and what's there. And, you know, I think we would also love questions and, you know, we want this to be unfiltered. We want it to be a conversation, but we also want to get the evidence that's out there and we're scientists. And Azure's a chemist, and I did years and years of science and became a physician, and I want to use the data. Physicians aren't perfect. Chemists aren't perfect either. We try to be, but we use the available evidence that's there, and very large governing bodies like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Centers for Disease Control, they recommend that all children receive a series of vaccinations to protect them from common childhood illness. Can you tell me what those common vaccines are? Um Certainly, and I, I, I do think it's something we should go through another time. And I want to talk about, you know, there's DTAP, which is diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, which just is them. whooping cough, um, haemophilus influenza B, which causes meningitis and periorbital cellulitis or infection around the eye. Um, many of these vaccines, newer pediatricians never even saw. They were commonplace. So, for instance, Hib or like, Hamal- maybe maybe chickenpox. I had chickenpox. That did. I don't even think that was around when I, I was. Ha- I have kid. residents that have never seen chickenpox. Um, I had it. We still see it every once in a while, but I've seen measles three times in my career because we've eradicated it and eliminated it. And people don't realize that you would get brain infections and lung infections. Uh, we rarely see mumps. My dad talks about mumps. He wore a thing around his head to make sure that his jaws did swell up. And this is like so crazy to think about right now. Like yeah. I remember when, when I was little, it was like a common thing to oh 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 J- Jeremy has the chicken pox. Oh okay, Azure's gonna come over and there she's yeah. gonna get chicken pox. Chicken with pox him. parties. Yeah, exactly. And it's like now you hear about it. And when I told you my mom had a chicken pox party, you looked at me like I had three heads. Like oh my god. But it's a different time. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And other vaccines that we routinely give are varicella, pneumococcal congenite vaccine, and you know I've seen strep pneumo. Um, it's a really bad bacteria. Hepatitis B, certainly rotavirus, and you know don't forget influenza. You know influenza hurts people every year, and I've actually seen probably less people get it this year because of the whole COVID debacle and COVID being out there. That was a really great answer. Um, yeah, as you said, we, we'll have another segment on um, immunizations, a uh, totally separate time than this. Uh, moving forward, what's more, I have more questions. I'm going to give you like four more questions. I promise I'll stop after that. I ha- it's just, I love asking you questions and I'm sure everyone else does, list, loves listening to your answers. Um, I hear about tummy time. I've used tummy time. 
you know, you read about tummy time. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Why is it important? It certainly is important from a standpoint of increasing their their tone and their core muscles. They learn to use their head. They learn to, learn to use their neck. The question I always get asked is, when can I do it? When can I do it? It always has to be supervised, especially when they're very, very young. Eight, nine months, you always, under that, you want to watch them very closely because when they're on their belly, it's that back to sleep thing again, right? But you can start doing it. What I like is do a little tummy time every time you do a diaper change. Like what? One minute, two minutes, 30 well, seconds? What they're comfortable with. Yeah. You know, and what you're comfortable with and, you know, do a diaper change. It's like change. the gym. We're doing three yeah. reps. Do, do 30 minutes and your kid's <laughs> doing, you know, 30 seconds and your kid's doing push-ups by, <laughs> by six months. Um, but it will help them with their head control. It will help them strengthen the muscles and build their core, make them really comfortable. And it's part of their development. And it's, you could start doing it at three months. There's nothing wrong with doing it then. It's got to be up to you. Um, it's something that you should also use as some bonding time and time that you can spend with them. Play, make it playful, make it fun. Exactly. Do what you got to do. Exactly. Right now, it is getting warm out. It's getting, today was super hot for Pennsylvania. It was like 76, but like two days ago, it was like 30 degrees. So I am sure you have had someone at your shift this morning come in and overdress their kid. Is that... Or maybe underdress. I'm not sure. But do you often get kids that have so many layers on them? I mean, the real question is, how do you properly dress your kid, especially with these fluctuating temperatures? I think the rule is dressing them with the way that you would dress and probably one more layer. And why would we do that? Babies are more prone to lose heat. And they're also prone to get overheated. Especially the little ones. Exactly. So, you know, you want in a young baby, you want them dressed like you and then another layer. So good rule is one extra layer. They also lose a lot of heat through their head. So hats are a must for babies. And then in the summer, you need to keep a really close eye on them. And I would say dress them like you dress. Um, if it's 95 degrees out, you don't want them dressed in three layers in a snowsuit. No blankets. And blankets and I see that all the time also with fevers you know a baby's got a 103 fever or a child's got a 103 fever and they're wrapped in a snowsuit and they have four blankets around them yeah they're cold but they also do you don't want their temperature to go up even more so you know it's really important to think about what you're wearing don't overdo it we see it a lot of times in the winter especially when it's cold you know I, I've seen a child come in literally with five layers in a snowsuit still in my emergency department dressed and we literally took the, there was puddles of sweat and it looked like the child had a fever but they really didn't because they were so hot and an hour later they were perfectly fine so you know quick rule in the winter time probably one more layer in the summertime dress like you especially that car seat that can really trap a lot of heat in the car with the heat on because we can take our jackets off they can't so if they're dressed heavily in a car seat can make them really hot. So I'd say, what, how do you check? You know, do you, you feel their forehead? Do you feel their back? You check for sweat. You see if they're shivering. Um, I think that one of the best ways to check a temperature is put your hand underneath their armpit. Um, it gets really close to their core or chest, check their abdomen. And that really gets to something that's really important to me. And unfortunately I've seen in my lifetime, which I hope I don't ever see is a baby being left in a car and what can happen even in the spring 
and it can be 70 degrees outside and you can close a door, leave a baby in the back seat, and it can be 140 degrees, 150 degrees, and they can be dead in the back seat in 20 minutes. I saw a, uh, a police officer make a segment. He was doing a video and he sat in a car and it was on a cool kind of spring day like it was today. And he says, I have a thermometer in my hand and I'm going to sit in this car and I'm going to show you how quickly temperature rises within a car turned off yeah we, we see tragedies he sat year. there for 15 20 minutes and it raised you know like 20 degrees and he's sitting there sweating and it's like over 100 degrees and he was just showing you dogs too pets you know people leave pets in their car and you don't realize how hot it is yeah it's really scary and i've been on the receiving end of kids come in with 108 temperatures have been left for 40 50 minutes in 90 degree weather in the backseat of a car it's a tragedy and most times it's not purposeful I think there are things that you can do and get into habits of always checking the back seat. Uh, when you take your child out of the back seat, replace it with a stuffed animal. So you get in that habit going back and forth, using something to remind you to do that. We're all busy. We're all running around. And, you know, we forget, you know, there's a story of an individual who normally he forgot his kid was there. He went off to work and the child died. And, you know, it's sad. And, I just can't stress it enough and really being cognizant and really thinking about it, especially starting in the spring. And there are a lot of cool tricks. You know, every time your baby leaves, put your purse there. Um, you know, flipping things, using using tools to help you. That's a really good, that's a really good tactic. Yeah. yeah, especially for new parents who are just not used to that or just yeah. overly tired. Yeah, just get in the habit early. You know, I, I like the I like the stuffed animal. You take your baby out, you put stuffed animal in. And it's just a habit that you get into over and over again. I did it with my kids. And it really is, it's kind of preventative. With newborns, uh, you know, lots of parents like using pacifiers. Uh, it's something they give you at the hospital, right? That green thing that looks kind of like a nipple, but it's not. It's yeah. a little weird looking. And sometimes, you know, babies can be super uh, pacifier picky. Uh, so... You know, I saw what made me think about this was, you know, I, I have a friend and I saw her four-year-old had a pacifier in his mouth. And I just thought to myself, you know, what, what age is really a good age to stop? I used, I used them. You know, they're a, a soothing mechanism. You did mention on our podcast previously that they can assist with, you know, avoiding SIDS. You said there was yeah. research behind that they, it could help. And, you know, it is a good soothing mechanism. I used it until I think my daughter was like maybe seven months old, right? And it, parents are really inclined to not stop, to not use them, to, sorry, sorry, let me rephrase that, to continue to use them because once you take them away, they cry. And they want it, they want it, they want it. It's exactly so, the same thing about cuddling in the middle of the yeah, night. Yeah, I took, I took it away from my daughter. I was like, you don't need this. You're, you're getting a little older. You're sleeping through the night. And, you know, again, baby boot camp. And it was like three days that she cried. And then after that, she's like, yeah, I don't need it. I don't need it. But then I see other kids who are much older, you know, four, five, six I, I years think, old with a pacifier. So what are your thoughts about that? Six months is kind of that inflection point right there's good data to show that under six months it may decrease sudden infant death syndrome um after over six months it varies but certainly as you get older and and you're using it over six months there's a risk of ear infections and there's a risk of dental issues 
And, you know, I always kind of tell parents, you want to pay for braces um, because that's what's really going to happen. It can change the formation of your mouth. Their mouths are growing. Is that like sucking fingers too? Similar. And they can both be challenging. And I don't think there should really be a hard, fast rule of, you know, six months you get rid of it. Um, Do I think a child should be walking around with it in their mouth at a year and a half? Absolutely not. And there is good data over six months that you can have dental issues and lead to ear infections and all those things. You don't think about these things, right? You think at that moment, oh my God, they're quiet. You know? It's (laughs) definitely, it's a baby comfort and a parent comfort. Mm -hmm. And what I tell parents, you know, when I have the conversations with parents all the time. I see the four-year-old that's sucking on a pacifier. And, you know, what I get is, well, it just came out for the ER visit. And that's usually not true. And, you know, I say, you know, just my job is to educate. I say, just let you know that, you know, there's a risk. They may not like it, but there's a risk of ear infections. You know, you may need a orthodontist. And, you know, they their ears perk up when I say, you know, it might cost $5,000 for additional dental mm-hmm. work. Um, but... What they're looking for is, how do I fix this? How do I do it? And you talked about that three days of hell and that you went through of crying, right? Even my then, you know, my then husband, he he was so adamant. He's like, no, just give it to her. Just give it to her just for tonight. And I was like, no, no, we need to make sure that she, she understands that she can soothe herself without it. So I'm going to add a little trick, especially for older kids. And this is something I was taught by a mentor when I was doing pediatrics. And we all know the tooth fairy. What I recommend if you have a three-year-old or four-year-old, make it fun. Change it around. Spin the dynamic. Take all the pacifiers in the house. Let them know that the pacifier fairy is coming. Put them all under the pillow. The pacifier. And they wake up the next morning and all the nipples are cut and they get a little bit of a treat and everything's gone. You're still going to deal with them wanting it, but hey, you're a big girl now. And it's a way to kind of make it fun to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can have older siblings involved. I think it's I think it's a good thing. And this topic's extremely challenging and I understand and I get it. And it's really hard. And some kids will be really stubborn more than others each kid's different absolutely i remember my last boss she came to me and she's like oh i gotta go to an orthodontist appointment and i'm like oh for you she says no my daughter and i was like really because i was thinking her daughter was only 10 or 11 years old at the time it starts at five and six i now. was thinking oh my god that's so early i don't, I don't remember kids getting orthodontics until you were like 16 right but she's she's like, yeah. And I was like, well, why? You know, she's like, well, because I let her suck her thumb until she was like, I don't know, probably last month. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my God. She says, yeah. It was, she's like, I thought getting rid of the pacifier was good. But then she replaced it with her thumb. And I was like, oh, you know, it's good because she's being um, resourceful. And she's not crying and bothering me, right? You know, as you have more kids, you're just like, ugh, whatever, right? So this is her second kid. She was like, eh. And let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. And this kid had her jaw was pushed back. Her teeth were pushed forward. She had to have all this metal in her mouth to pull her jaw, even more contractions to like do other things I can't even repeat. And it's like she's like, I wish I did not do that. I think some of it is there's a pain. And I don't really, it's not a true pain to take away. I mean, they're unhappy when you take away the pacifier. Just like I want chocolate. I want but, chocolate today. But is I it want a chocolate balance tomorrow. later? How much pain will they go through later? You know, Absolutely. braces, I had them. They're not fun. 
Um, my kids had them. They're not fun. And, you know, it's it's a trade-off. And it's something that parent needs, parent needs to think about. With that being said about orthodontics, you know, going back when they first get that, those two bottom teeth, you know, I've, I've, a couple of my friends are like, oh, I'm supposed to take them to the dentist. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I already took my, my daughter to the dentist. She just had her like two teeth pop up and uh, want to make sure everything's good growing in right. And I, they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, oh, but they're just going to fall out. <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. Yeah, the first visit, you need to be there at six months usually. And when their teeth erupt is really when you – some kids, will their teeth will erupt at seven months. Some will be five months. But you need to take care of those teeth um, for two reasons. One is they can get dental caries. They can be painful. They can get cavities. It can be problematic. We see children that are given bottles to sleep with. And they get what we call baby bottle teeth. Their teeth turn black. It is extremely painful. Because of the sugar and all of the milk. The sugar sitting on it Or juice. And the bacteria is just going to town all night long. The general rule is when the teeth erupt through, you're going to want to take really a pea-sized amount of children's toothpaste, a small brush, and baby toothbrush. And you're going to want to brush them at least twice a day. And you're going to floss them if you have any touching in between teeth. That's a really good rule. You want to try to floss them. It's a challenge. And you may not. No one, no one's ever going to fault you if you didn't floss your I kids. made it fun. I, you know, I, was, I got a regular old dry toothbrush and I was just like, let's play a game and we'll sing a song at the same time. You know, my daughter was, you know, just wobbling around still six months old and getting her to play with this toothbrush. And I was just, you know thinking like we have to do this you know twice a day or at least after every time she eats or drinks um and made a big habit of it and she was she transitioned into brushing her teeth super easy and you know i took her for that first dental visit and the dentist was super surprised because the dentist sees the things that you just described all too often yeah it's it's really important and i believe that it starts habits for the rest of your life you know you started at six months you started at eight months really important because then at six years old they're brushing their teeth twice a day absolutely they're used to it it's like you know making your bed in the morning just get into the habit you know push through it get used to doing it and make it fun well dr chris that as much as i really want to sit you here and ask you a thousand and two more questions i've had had enough questions tonight (laughs) you know just so you know guys this is kind of like exactly of how the enactment of like how it was when i met him you know, I was like, oh, just one more question. Just one more question. You know, you get that in the office too, I'm sure. Just one more question. Uh, frequently. <laughs> yeah. So as much as I want to ask you more questions, and I'm sure, you know, these are just the basic. There are so many more questions that I'm sure you have. Please send them in. You know, again, these are just a couple of questions that we are brushing over that a lot of new parents especially have for pediatricians or pediatric doctors and you know there's so much more to know and again we answer questions like these and much more at our classes at uh, kids health secrets and you know we have the mom coaching we have we have consultations we have you can talk to dr chris one-on-one if you want and ans- and you know ask similar questions and you know we're here for you so you can also send in a couple questions, you know, also for future ideas for uh, podcasts and uh, 
we look forward to those. But for now, um, thank you for all of your lovely information. And I hope everybody, I mean, this was a lot of information. I asked probably way more than 20 questions, but because, uh, you know, one has, one question always has like six embedded inside of it. But, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time to answer a lot of these kind of new parent questions. And I really, really hope that, you know, for all our listeners that you learned a little bit, a lot of it, something that was new, or, you know, you walk away and you can't wait to tell your friends about this new piece of information, uh, whether they're parents or not. And, you know, even the stories that Dr. Chris, you know, the things that you say that, you know, about the coin over the belly button, like I, you, you don't hear about these things in regular conversation. And it is, I, you know, eyebrow raising. And we like to hear these stories, good or bad. And um, it's just informative. So I'm really happy that we can talk to our listeners today about all these questions. Certainly always a pleasure. And I had 67 questions, I think it was. <laughs> He's counting. This is him. I just so um, you know. He... <laughs> 84. Uh, but it's really important and it's what we're both passionate about is getting this information out. Yes, and please. I want everybody to know. And it's bloomroadwellness.com and our classes are called Kids Health Secrets. And it is something that we think will help either an expecting mom new mom, even an experienced we mom. We have our Baby 101 course that and, answers a thousand and two more questions like and these. we're looking forward to sharing more and more information with you. It has experiences, answers questions. I, I, yeah, I can't wait. So until then, we will see you at our next podcast. Again, reminder, send in your questions, comments. We love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk soon. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for joining our Mom and Doc Talk. Did any questions come up while you were listening? Share your questions with Dr. Christopher and Azure by visiting www.blueemeraldwellness.com. You can also connect with them on Instagram at WeAreKidsHealthSecrets. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes or Spotify so we can continue answering your most pressing kids' health and parenting questions. Thanks again for tuning in. And we'll catch you in the next episode of Mom and Doc Talk. The content of this podcast, the opinions and information provided by the co-host and guests are for educational purposes only and should not replace the care provided by your child's physician. If you or your child is ill or having an emergency, please call 911 or seek care immediately.